ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. Today's ID the Future completes the two-part conversation between Hank Hanegraaff, host of the Hank Unplugged podcast, and Discovery Institute senior fellow Richard Weichart. They're talking about Weichart's book, Darwinian Racism, How Darwinism Influenced Hitler, Nazism, and White Nationalism. We say thanks to Hank Hanegraaff for permission to use this audio, and his voice is the first one you'll hear as they begin. I think as long as we're talking about evolutionary ethics, we need to mention Richard Dawkins. I don't think it's a coincidence that Dawkins fully approves a scientific experimentation to produce half-human, half-ape hybrids and hopes that these monstrosities will finally convince us as human beings that we're not all that special, that we're merely insignificant pieces of matter in motion. Yeah, and exactly. And Dawkins is, again, not an outlier in that kind of view as well. In fact, all the way back in the late 19th and early 20th century, there were people who were talking about doing artificial insemination experimentation with humans and chimps and such to try to artificially inseminate either a chimp with human sperm or a human with chimp sperm to try to come up with some, you know, creature between humans and apes to try to, again, sort of provide more evidence for evolution, try to break down people's ideas that humans are somehow special. And in fact, Heckel and others fought against what they called anthropocentrism. What they meant by anthropocentrism is the idea that humans are special. Humans have unique status. And that's an idea that we're still seeing in our day quite frequently. Peter Singer is just one example of that. There's a University of Texas ecologist who made some very interesting comments in the early 2000s along those lines, fighting against anthropocentrism. And he actually claimed, this is a guy named Eric Pianca, he actually claimed that it would be good if 90% of the human population were wiped out because we as humans aren't special and we're ruining the planet. And so you get a lot of people, especially in the animal rights movement and other things like that, who are claiming that humans just aren't special. You know, and so we need to sort of get over that idea. And that idea comes out of the idea that we've just evolved, just like every other creature, and we're just an accidental collection of atoms. What's so disturbing, if I can put it this way, as I read your writings as a historian, is that I'm constantly making parallels between what happened in Nazi Germany and what's happening in our own culture but much more insidiously in the sense that people don't see the logical consequences of the theories that they're embracing. You have a chapter in your book titled Evolutionary Theory in Nazi Schools, and there you see it for its stark, disturbingly nefarious ramifications, where you have a curriculum that says humans disturb natural selection and help the sick and weak. Now, we as Christians think about how important it is to help the sick and the weak. I was just in a leper colony a few weeks ago and saw how Christian missions are providing water and medical assistance for the least of these in Nazi Germany, but also in some modern thought to help the sick and the weak isn't really helpful at all. 
It's simply retarding the evolutionary process. Yeah, that's right. And that's exactly the mentality that was behind the eugenics movement that we've already discussed there. But yes, you're right that helping the weak and sick is considered, you know, helping those who are considered, quote, unfit, who otherwise would perish, and stymieing evolutionary progress. And in fact, what's interesting is that there were quite a number of thinkers, Darwin himself, and also many other Darwinists in the late 19th, early 20th century, who, even though they claimed that morality had evolved, and so morality itself, they thought, didn't have any objectivity about it. On the other hand, they somehow tried to smuggle back in some kind of objectivity by claiming that the evolutionary process itself was what determined what's moral. So whatever advances the biological evolution is good, and whatever you know, stymies evolutionary progress is bad. And so that's where they get the ideas where, you know, that we need to try to eliminate those who are weak and sick. And so the, the way the Nazis did that is they did start off with compulsory sterilization in 1933 to 34, but then they advanced from that in 1939 once the war broke out and they thought they could get away with it. They went ahead and advanced to outright killing of people with disabilities. And so the Nazis, over the course of World War II, killed approximately 200,000 Germans with disabilities because they thought they were unfit. And so they wanted to get rid of what they called the hereditary taint of those people. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely amazing. They murdered some 200,000 disabled Germans, and it wasn't just the Germans. They also murdered tens of thousands of disabled people in occupied territories. Yeah, exactly. In fact, they began the program of extermination of people with disabilities actually began in Poland when they overran Poland. And they began doing it in uh, late 1939 in Poland. But then they shifted the program to Germany itself. But yeah, they, they killed disabled people. We don't, I don't have the exact statistics, but it was tens of thousands in France, in Poland, and in other parts of uh, every place they occupied, essentially. As a historian, how do you provide a rationale for Hitler and the Germans saying that they, as Nordic people, were superior to other people? I mean, how did Nordic people get to be superior over other, quote-unquote, races of people? Yeah, interestingly, Nordic racists, and this is before Hitler, by the way, Hitler really didn't have any original ideas, that at least that I know of. Uh, the way that he put them together might have been original, but all the ideas that Hitler had were being put forward by many racist thinkers before him. And there was already a school of Nordic racists before Hitler's time who argued that the Nordic race had become superior because of the environmental conditions that they had had to endure. And so they went through what biologists today would call selection pressure. And so this selection pressure, they thought, was brought about by the harsh climate of the North, because they thought the Nordic people, of course, had evolved in Scandinavia and northern Germany. And so they were talking about the climatic conditions. They also believed the Ice Ages played a role in it, so the, ice, the harshness of the Ice Ages, they thought, had made the Nordic peoples more intellectually efficient because they had to think more. They also, they thought, made them more cooperative because they had to work together more to offset these climatic conditions. On the other hand, they thought that the black Africans had been living in tropical climates, and because of that, they thought they didn't need to work very hard. They could just sort of find their food here and there, so they didn't have to, you know, face the strenuous pressures that the Nordic race had. 
So this was their explanation. The difference in climates uh, had created these different intellectual and moral capacities in these races. Now, what's interesting today is that those same ideas are being recycled by white nationalists. You'll find those exact same ideas on white nationalist websites claiming that the Ice Ages and such had made the Nordic race uh, superior and the black Africans are inferior. I don't want to get too far off topic, but you mentioned climate conditions. Can you weigh in on your perspective on climate change? I mean, there has always been climate change from my perspective. You mentioned Ice Age. I remember reading in Time magazine, in fact, it was a cover story on the looming Ice Age. Now we're talking about warming conditions. Is it true to say or is it superficial to say that climate is always changing and has always changed over time, and there's good substantiation for that. You know, one of the interesting things, and I think, in looking historically at the way that scientists are talking about climate change, especially in relation to the issue that we already raised of eugenics and other kinds of things, is that there seem to be two things that they seem to use to try to motivate people to embrace their particular positions, and that motivates them, too. One is extrapolation, and that's a key problem with Darwinism, too, by the way. Darwinism thrives on extrapolation. That is, you take small change and you extrapolate it into large change. And that's really the whole basis of Darwinism, is extrapolation. And the problem is that if you look at Darwin's origin of species, the things that he extrapolated from, like breeding different pigeon breeds, you cannot extrapolate it indefinitely, but Darwin thought he could. Darwin thought he could just extrapolate that breeding process, and it can just go on, you know, those changes can keep just going on and on and on and on to, you know, create new species, new genera, new classes, and all these different new organisms. Well, we now know that that didn't work. Now, later on, scientists came up with new ideas of mutations to try to bridge that gap, but the extrapolation is still a problem for them, and that's a lot of Christian biologists who disbelieve in evolution today argue that microevolution does make a lot of sense, but macroevolution doesn't, and that's the problem with Darwin. They're extrapolating from the micro to the macro. The same problem of extrapolation comes in with eugenics movement. They were looking at some of these trends, these reproductive trends, and they started getting scared because they thought, oh, no, these people are out reproducing us, and we're going to have this. Well, they extrapolated from small sample sets. And the same thing, I think, is happening with the climate change thing, too. There's this problem of extrapolation, which, you know, uh, can be tricky. And that's, I think, going to be one of the things that we're going to have to see if it really does pan out, if you can really extrapolate from this small set to something larger. The other key issue that I think is both, characteristic within the eugenics movement and the climate change movement is this fear factor. There's tremendous fear that's being generated. And one of the problems that I have with climate change, and I don't want to get too far on this, it's kind of off topic here, but one of the problems that I have with the climate change issue is that even if it is true that the climate keeps on increasing in temperature, there are both good and bad things that could be possible consequences of those. But you never hear anyone talk about the good consequences that could come about by global warming. You always hear the negative consequences. And by the way, anything proves it. If you have a drought or if you have floods, it doesn't matter. It's all, you know, it's all a consequence of global warming. So anything that happens, they can claim is a consequence. Anything bad that happens, I should say, they'll claim is a consequence of global warming. Anything good that happens, they won't talk about that. 
Well, this is a little off point as well, but you are well-versed in so many different areas. I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit. Again, I'm a little bit sensitive about all of this, having come back from a country where there's somewhere around 1.3, 1.4 billion people, and so many of them do not have fresh water, where we're spending tens of trillions of dollars the global economy on a phantom problem or something that might at least be phantom to some extent, where with, I forget the exact number, the number 200 billion sticks in my mind. For 200 billion, we could provide fresh water for everyone on the planet that doesn't have it presently. So instead of fighting a phantom problem, we could be taking care of the real needs of people. And I mean, I've seen it firsthand where women particularly in the caste system, you have the outcasts or the deletes, they can't drink from the water of people in the caste system. And so they just don't have fresh water. They're drinking polluted water. We could be providing fresh water for them instead of fighting phantom problems. Yeah. And even if the problem isn't a phantom problem, I think one of the problems with this whole discourse is that people become so fixated on one problem at a time. And I don't know if, I think the media just sort of operates this way too. The media sort of tends to focus our attention on one thing. And we get so fixated on that one thing that we forget about everything else. And even if it is a real problem, we get so fixated on that one problem that we end up with all sorts of solutions that might even be worse than the problem itself. And so, you know, some of the solutions we have to global warming might actually be worse than global warming. So we need to be very careful, I think, in that respect. What about the moniker, follow the science? We hear that all the time now. And as I mentioned in the prologue to this podcast, anyone who has spent even a modicum of time looking at the progression of scientific speculation knows that academics or scientists are not impervious to groupthink. You got tenure, you got social dynamics, you got grants, you have so many different factors that are in play. And so you have this herd mentality, and you've ably pointed out the herd mentality when it comes to eugenics, but we have that all over the place, and we have to be very careful with that moniker, follow the science. It sounds reasonable, but in many cases, it isn't reasonable at all. No, it isn't. And if you look at the history of science, you see again and again and again places where scientists were incredibly wrong, like in the racism issue, you know, so-called scientific racism. Back in the 1890s, early 1900s, scientists were insisting that racism was scientific. And if you question that, they sometimes, I've actually seen this, they've criticized people who were anti-racist, saying, you're letting your religion get in the way. You know, you're letting these egalitarian ideas from your religion, you know, color your thinking, but science teaches us, you know, that races are different and that they have different intellectual capacities, and then they go on and on. So, yeah, if you look at the history of science, you see all sorts of episodes of this, and that's just one that I've just given you, scientific racism. Interestingly, however, we tend to have this hubris about us as an intellectual elite that scientists today will say, well, that was then. <laughs> you know, that was back in the day. We, you know, we've overcome those ideas. You know, we now have 
better, new, improved ideas about all these things. And so we can recognize these things in the past, but a lot of times people don't want to recognize in the present. And so, as you're suggesting, there are many things in the present that scientists believe. It's part of the consensus, so they think they have to believe it, and they, many of them do. But they don't even question it. They don't even think about it. And if you dare to question it, they will automatically say, oh, your religion is getting in the way, you know, you know you're, you're not thinking about things scientifically here or whatever. And so, yeah, the scientists very often get caught up in these ideas. And the closer, by the way, that you get to dealing with who we are as humans, the bigger a problem that is for science. And the sciences of psychology and sociology, if they can be called sciences, they are now undergoing what some people are referring to as a replication crisis. And what the replication crisis means is that some of these sort of textbook examples of psychological experiments that for years psychologists were teaching to their students at the universities, they're trying to replicate those experiments and failing. And we're not just talking about one or two things. We're talking about dozens and dozens of experiments that were considered to be, you know, the truth. And now scientists are recognizing that there are problems with them. Uh, And so this is becoming a big problem in the social sciences, uh, especially. So, again, the closer you get to humans and things that impact humans, the bigger problem this becomes in the sciences because we have more prejudices and biases and such, and our worldview affects those things to a greater degree. We were talking earlier about sterilization. I want to talk about transgenderism for just a moment because effectively what is happening with a lot of people is they're being sterilized, as it were, that their metaphysics are determining their physics. In other words, instead of the other way around, where we're looking at biological sex, we're allowing our perceptions of gender to determine whether we're male or female. And as a result of that metaphysical determination, we're making drastic physical decisions that cannot be reversed. Yeah, and that can be very tragic. And in fact, since this has become the rage in the past decade especially or so, we're also now seeing some of the consequences of that, which is people are recognizing that this didn't help them. (laughs) Even if you were able to do it, people are recognizing that that didn't help them, and now there are people detransitioning, that is going back to their original sex. But unfortunately, those who have gone through the chemical and surgical alterations now are left scarred for life. But, you know, I think the issue here, I mean, about transgenderism gets at the issue of, you know, we want to be as God. You know, we want to control everything. We don't want to be told what we are and who we are, and so we don't want to be content with how God made us. And unfortunately, some of this gets bred again in young children as they, you know, interact with peers. And, you know, I can understand why some get confused over things because they want to fit in, they want to, you know, be popular, they want all these different things, and there's a lot of pressures going on in their lives, and they think somehow that's going to be a silver bullet to, you know, if I get this change, then somehow I'll be popular, I'll be fit more with what I want to be, and then they find out it doesn't work that way. 
And you see just how important the Christian worldview is, because in the Christian worldview, the soul is engendered. Right. So the problem here is we're decoupling biological sex from gender. Right. And that is a huge, huge problem. Christianity has the answer. The evolutionary hypothesis does not. I want to get back to the main and the plane that we've been talking about, and that is to get your perspective on what hard heredity is and why it is important in the debate about whether the Nazis embraced evolutionary theory. Yeah, hard heredity is the idea that biological inheritance is passed on through DNA, well, Nazis didn't know about DNA, but they knew that the hereditary traits were passed on biologically and such, rather than there being what's called soft heredity, which is where, you know, you could have, you know, environmental things shaping them uh, as well. So the Nazis were biological racists, biological determinists, and believed that biology really was the determining factor, that you couldn't change people's nature. And, and in fact, because of that, this is why when they tried to target the Jews as they considered an inferior race, and they tried to target them, they didn't target them based on what religion they practiced, because Hitler didn't care what a person's religion was. What he cared about was their racial characteristics. And so they looked at the grandparents of the person to try to determine whether or not they were a Jew, not looking at themselves, because they thought if their grandparents are Jews, then they're Jews. That's basically the idea. So the idea was that they were looking at heredity to determine the value of individuals. And so if a Jew, for example, had become an atheist or an agnostic or had converted to Catholicism or converted to Protestantism, Hitler didn't care. They still got sent to Auschwitz or Treblinka or other death camps because they were identified as Jewish. It didn't matter what they believed. It mattered what their biological makeup was. You've already sort of touched on this, but I think it's worthy of expansion. The Nazis thought that Darwinian evolutionary theory provided a scientific and intellectual foundation for Nazism. So my question is, why is it that so many evangelicals today think that the evolutionary theory is compatible with Christianity? Yeah, I mean, I, my sense of the matter is thinking historically about how the history and sort of the psychology of people in these kind of matters is, I think a lot, in a lot of cases, simply people are wanting to fit in with what they see as the dominant intellectual scientific worldview, and they, for one reason or other, perhaps they are taught it in school, and so they believe it through their schooling, or they, you know, get confronted, maybe they grew up disbelieving it and get to college, and then they can't answer the questions of the, the professor that teaches them evolution, so they feel kind of stupid, and so they don't want to feel stupid. So they want to feel like they are part of the sort of enlightened intellectual elites, and they see that as a path to that. So I think social pressure and acceptance probably does play a very big role in all of this, as it does in many things in our lives, not just with evolution, but I think in a lot of other of our beliefs as well. But I think that there's a lot of cases where Christians don't want to feel ostracized by society, and so they see this as a way of fitting in better with society. And to be fair, I think some of them believe that once you believe that, if you come to a belief that evolution is true, then many of them think that those that reject evolution are sort of turning off people to the truth 
of Christianity by rejecting it, and that they, by embracing evolution, can then reach those people who believe evolution, too. Do you ever think that this might be a case of buying high and selling low, that there's going to be a point in our history where we look back at Darwinian evolution and say, how in the world could anyone have contended for such a absolutely bankrupt idea? Yeah, well, I hope we'll dispense with it fairly quickly, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. It's going to depend a lot on where people go with the larger worldviews, because if you are going to continue to embrace a worldview in which there is no God, I mean, even pre-Darwinian, there were people, of course, who embraced materialistic worldviews before Darwin came on the scene. So if you're going to continue to embrace that kind of a worldview, evolution almost has to be true, you know, some kind of evolution. So it's like sort of the default position for atheism and a lot of forms of agnosticism and such. So I think it's going to depend on where we go with our response to God and the gospel. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, but I'm thinking about it from within the parameters of the broad Christian worldview. I mean, it just isn't compatible. No, I don't think so at all. And there's huge issues relating to compatibility. And I was talking, in fact, with a biology teacher not too long ago who claims to be a Christian and who also embraced evolution. And he himself was telling me that he thought that Christianity had a big problem in dealing with evolution because of the issue of sin and death and other kinds of issues like that, that both evolution and Christianity have answers to, but not the same answers. So he himself was saying that he thought there were tensions between Christianity and evolution, so I asked him how he reconciled those, and he just sort of threw up his hands and said, I don't know. I want to talk about Chapter 8 of your book, Darwinism and Neo-Nazism and White Nationalism. The white nationalists hold contempt for the U.S. Declaration of Independence because of its dictum primarily that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. Instead, they believe that might is right. They believe that the destruction of feeble types is not only natural but necessary. A typical mission statement, and I think I got this from your book. I wrote this down. A typical mission statement for the white nationalists might be, cursed are the unfit, for they shall be righteously exterminated. And when I read that, I thought immediately of what Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that was a very direct play, obviously, upon that, in trying to counter that. In fact, I don't remember if that came out of Ragnar Redbeard's book, Might is Right, but it wouldn't surprise me if it did. But in any case, Ragnar Redbeard in 1896, and that's a pseudonym, by the way, we don't know exactly who this was, wrote a book called Might is Right. And in that book, which is, by the way, available in PDF on a lot of white nationalist websites or being sold on white nationalist websites and such today, it's still being recommended by a lot of white nationalists. His subtitle of the book was Survival of the Fittest, and he promoted social Darwinist ideas an idea similar to the one that you just quoted. In fact, it might have been a quote from his book. I don't remember off the top of my head. But interestingly, that book, Might is Right, was recommended by the young man who committed a mass shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in 2019. Just before he went and shot up the Garlic Festival, he put on his social media that everyone ought to read Redbeard's book, Might is Right. 
And so that book has been circulated quite extensively among white nationalists. And now here's another interesting thing about that book, Might is Right. The book actually had fallen into really relative obscurity until the 1970s when Anton LaVey, the leader of the Satanic Church, publicized it in his Satanic Bible. And that's really where it sort of took off and began to influence a lot of white nationalists since then. You make the point that the white nationalist agenda is a logical deduction of Darwin's famous pronouncement. If man is to advance still higher, he must remain subject to a severe struggle. Otherwise, he would sink into indolence, and the more gifted men would not be more successful than the less gifted men. That, by the way, coming directly from the descent of man. Yeah, and when I was doing my work on this book, Darwinian Racism, I did a good deal of research on white nationalist websites and publications, and I hope the FBI doesn't look at my uh, uh, <laughs> my record of my readings. But anyway, it was legitimate research that I was doing on it. What I found was that Darwin was lauded. Generally, Christianity was condemned on most of the white nationalist websites, but they not only uh, thought highly of Darwin, but they believed that Darwinism was proof for their white nationalist views. If you look at the writings of the psychologist Kevin McDonald, he was a professor at California State University, Long Beach. He was very anti-Semitic. He promoted evolutionary psychology, and he saw that as the basis for white nationalism. Richard Spencer, who was a pretty prominent figure in the so-called alt-right movement, got a little more press around 2016, 2017, so not quite as well-known today, but still, he's one of the key figures that was known as the alt-right leader, and he wrote in some of his blogs, group differences exist as consequences of evolution by natural selection. And then he said that racial differences are a natural and normal consequence of human evolution. So again, they're drawing these conclusions from Darwin's theory that Darwin himself drew, that races are different because of their evolutionary past. And this is uh, then a position that is resurfacing now, albeit it's, of course, among a fringe group today, not among the mainstream scientists and such today, but there are those out there that are embracing this view. This is sort of mainstream cosmotheism, seeing nature as your God and promoting evolution as God's highest command. Yeah, it is. And some of these people do tend more toward pantheistic kind of view, and that's, in fact, a view similar to Hitler's own. In fact, when my book, Hitler's Religion, came out, I actually got an email from a neo-Nazi who told me that he thought that I had interpreted Hitler exactly right, that Hitler was a pantheist. And he agreed with that, and he himself apparently likes pantheism as well. So, yeah, there's neo-Nazis and white nationalists today who are embracing pantheistic worldview as well. One of the conclusions you draw in your book is that there are some parallels between what happened in the 20th century and what's happening in the 21st century. The irony when you have a Nobel Prize winning biologist like James Watson suggesting that some racial groups such as black Africans had lower intelligence because of their evolutionary history. And 
You point out that when this was said in 2007, there was a lot of criticism, but that criticism may be waning. In the evolutionary psychological science, with Harvard's Steven Pinker on its editorial board, you have an article defending the anti-Semitic racist views of Kevin McDonald, an emeritus professor of psychology at California State University, Long Beach. So on the one hand, you have the statement that seems outrageous, but the edifice of outrage seems to be cracking a little bit. Yeah, it's hard to tell where that's going to go from here. I mean, still, the mainstream does seem to be anti-racist, and I'm thankful for that. But it's hard to know where this is going to go in the future with the intellectual tides. Jerry Cohn, another professor of evolutionary biology, argues that infanticide and assisted suicide should be permitted and insists that the increasing acceptance of these horrors in our society, although he doesn't call them horrors, is a sign of moral progress. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty uh, common view. Steven Pinker also, by the way, takes the view that we're progressing morally and they have these you know, progressive views. But it's, by the way, it's interesting that if you look at their views of morality, like Coyne, for example, he believes that it evolved, so he doesn't think there is any objective morality, and yet what are we progressing toward then? How can you have progress if there's no objective morality? Progress implies that there's some objective moral yardstick outside of ourselves. So if you claim we're making moral progress, then you have to believe in some kind of objective morality, which most of these people claim they don't believe in. They claim they don't believe in any kind of objective morality. They think it's just an evolved trait that we're wrestling with. But if you look at, like, Jerry Coyne, for example, in when he talked about the fact that we should allow people to do assisted suicide, because he, one of the things he said is, well, we euthanize dogs, you know, we have compassion on a dog, and we, you know, euthanize it rather than letting it suffer and such. But if I told Jerry Coyne, well, look, Jerry, how about this? How about if we round up all of the homeless people in New York City, and we will incarcerate them, and we will sterilize them, and then if we can't find homes for them with someone to take them in, then we will euthanize them. I can guarantee you that Jerry Coyne would, <laughs> would not agree to that, that he would say that this is immoral and, and horrible and how could I even entertain such an idea. But what I just described to you is exactly what we do to dogs. So somehow Jerry Coyne knows there's a difference between dogs and humans, even though he will not admit it himself. One time he said that we have no more extrinsic purpose than an armadillo. But I think Jerry Coyne knows better than that. I want to talk a little bit as we end this podcast about the death of humanity. First of all, the title is arresting, the death of humanity, the subtitle, and the case for life. Weigh in on the connection between our abandonment of God and then discarding humanity. The consequences of the view that we're just meaningless blobs of protein. Yeah, well, interestingly, once we abandon the idea that there is a God, if intellectual elites, and many of them have, got rid of that idea, then there's nothing to support the idea that humans have any value any longer. Now, fortunately, most people in their consciences and deep down know that that's not true, and so they don't act upon that, but that's what they're denying overtly. So one of the cases that I came across that was very interesting when I was researching the death of humanity was Bertrand Russell, the early 20th century 
British philosopher, one of the most famous British philosophers of the 20th century, who overtly denied that humans have any kind of purpose or meaning in life. He said that we are an accidental collocation of atoms. What a great turn of phrase there. You know, we're a cosmic accident, essentially. And he's not the only one saying that. I mean, Friedrich Nietzsche obviously is teaching a similar kind of thing, that, you know, that humans have no cosmic purpose, meaning, uh, significance beyond ourselves. We just create it ourselves. Morality is just something we create of ourselves. And so when they abandon God, they recognize that they abandon humanity as well. In fact, Foucault, who was one of the most famous French philosophers of the late 20th century, Foucault actually said quite forthrightly that once you've abandoned God, then you also are denying humanity. But he thought that was good. He wanted to deny God and deny humanity as well. By the way, he sort of spoke out of both sides of his mouth, though, because he talked a lot about human rights, even though he didn't believe in human rights. He didn't believe there were any intrinsic or objective human rights, but he would talk about human rights if it served his purposes of pushing his political position and such. So I think deep down, a lot of these people, even though they deny God, they recognize there's something about humanity that's special, but they don't admit it to themselves. And I mentioned to Bertrand Russell just a little bit ago, Bertrand Russell, when he wrote a letter to a woman that he was in love with, made some really powerful statements about how he said that this search for transcendence and such was gave his life meaning, even though he didn't believe there was anything transcendent. So intellectually, he denied there's anything transcendent. On the other hand, he said that he still was searching for something transcendent, and that he somehow has this notion that something does exist beyond himself, but he can't bring himself to intellectually accept that. I want to end with a delicious quote in your book. It's on page 281 of The Death of Humanity, where you write, noted 20th century Christian journalist and intellectual Malcolm Muggeridge, recognized the connection between abandoning God and discarding humanity when he wrote... If there was no God, nor any transcendental purpose in the experience of living in this world, then a human being's life would be no more intrinsically sacred than is that of a boiler house chicken when it stops laying eggs or is otherwise incapacitated, no longer rates its allowance of chicken feed, and has its neck wrung. And then you say, unfortunately, some secularists agree with Muggeridge, and the problem is they draw the exact opposite conclusion. They confirm his fear by biting the bullet and degrading humans, equating them with chickens, and that is precisely what organizations like PETA does. Yeah, and, you know, I've talked with people, not very many, a few, one I can think of in 2009, I was at a conference about Darwinism, and I talked to a philosophy graduate student, and he was telling me he believed in evolutionary ethics, and so I asked him the Hitler question. I said, you know, since I do a lot of research about Hitler, I said, well, what about Hitler? I said, are you telling me that Hitler was neither right nor wrong, that what he did was not objectively immoral or anything? And he said, yeah, what Hitler did was neither right nor wrong. And I said, well, how do you deal with that? And he sort of hemmed and hawed and said, well, I don't like what Hitler did, but objectively, there's nothing wrong with it. So, yeah, that's where we're at as a culture, unfortunately, among some of our intellectual elites. I'm hoping that we can retake our culture, though, to where people will, I mean, deep down, they recognize that's not true, but intellectually, they try to promote that idea. 
Well, I deeply appreciate you and your writings. The book, Darwinian Racism, How Darwinism Influenced Hitler, Nazism, and White Nationalism. By the way, you can get that book through the Christian Research Institute. You can find it on the web at equip.org. Also, a book that, as I confessed, I haven't finished reading, but I'll probably be up all night reading it tonight, The Death of Humanity. It is a compelling book from what I have read, the subtitle, and the case for life. So it's the death of humanity and the case for life. Both books available through the Christian Research Institute. If you stand shoulder to shoulder with us in the battle for life and truth. As always, we are committed on Hank Unplugged to bring the most interesting, informative, and inspirational people directly to your earbuds. And certainly Dr. Richard Weichart is squarely in the center of our mission statement. Again, Dr. Weichardt, thank you so much for your insights, for your writing, for your stand for the Christian worldview. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been great talking to you. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this Hank Unplugged podcast. Look forward to seeing you next time with more of the podcast. So long for now. That was Hank Hanegraaff interviewing Richard Weichart on Weichart's book, Darwinian Racism. Buy your copy today at your favorite online bookseller. That's Darwinian Racism by Richard Weichart. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.